As Phil said this morning, the readings from the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, and we commence at verse 22, reading to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Aon near Salem, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the manner uh, over the matter, sorry, of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man came to receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he knows the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. May God bless that reading to us this morning. I read an article a little while back uh, from the United States, and it referenced a study done in the United States, sorry, and in that study they found 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And 91% agreed with this statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. Now, from data like this, the author drew the conclusion that the fastest growing religion in the world is not the worship of Jesus or the worship of Allah or the worship of any other deity, but the worship of self. The most popular God in the world is the one that looks at you in the mirror. And it's hard to argue against it. Self-worship is the religion of our day. It's the religion of social media that says, look at me, honour me, even follow me. It's the religion of the shopping mall that says, I deserve this. It teaches the doctrine that I am worthy to receive glory and honour and power. Ethics and morality are defined by your own desires. If it feels right, then you should do it. And all hope 
is found not outside yourself, but within. Now, we are truly living in the day of self-worship. And, of course, it's not new. Self-worship may be the world's most popular religion. It's also the world's oldest. You go back to Genesis chapter 3. It was self-worship that led Adam to disobeying God's command in the garden, wasn't it? Essentially, he didn't want to worship God. He wanted to be God. I think the only thing that is kind of new today or that's different today is how widely celebrated self-worship is. It's the thing that people have done throughout the ages, but today it's the thing that we're expected to do. It's the thing that we rejoice over. We see it as, uh, as the ultimate good. But friends, this is not just something that we see in America. It's not just a thing for young people. It's not just a reality that's out there. Self-worship is your favourite religion too. Because all of us, in small and subtle ways, trust in ourselves, seek satisfaction in ourselves, are captivated by ourselves, even serve ourselves. And friends, that's a problem. Now, firstly, the most obvious problem is that it dishonours God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man, the purpose of our existence, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But instead, we make life about glorifying ourselves and enjoying ourselves. It's a corruption of our purpose. That's the first problem. But secondly, self-worship is a problem because it's really hard for us to see. See, most of us probably don't think we worship ourselves. We just like doing what we want when we want, and if someone gets in our way, we get angry. That's not self-worship, is it? Thirdly, it's a problem because it doesn't satisfy us. It seems really crazy, but people alive in the West today are among the healthiest and the wealthiest and the most self-sufficient people to have ever lived, and yet they're not happy. They're deeply unhappy. Why? Well, we weren't made to worship ourselves. We were made for someone better. Self-worship dishonours God. It's hard for us to even see it in our own lives. It doesn't work. And last but not least, it's really hard to change. You might see your tendency to worship yourself. You might hate the fact that you worship yourself. You might know that it dishonours God and it's not what he wants for you, but you'll try and try and try, and all of us will still find ourselves not only worshipping ourselves, but wanting other people to worship us. Self-worship is a problem. But what do we do about it? Well, brothers and sisters, John chapter 3 is here to help us. Because here in the passage that Colin just read for us, we see the problem of greedy self-love. We see people who allow their own desire for greatness to get in the way of goodness. We see the problem, but more importantly, in the life of John the Baptist, we see the solution. And so if we're going to be people who reject self-worship, to find in Jesus life that is infinitely more rewarding. We need to see what God has to teach us here in John 3 this morning. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dig into this passage together. Let me pray. 
Father God, speak to us through your word now, we ask. By your spirit, help it to penetrate deep within us so that it might expose our hearts, that we might see what it is that we truly love and that we might be corrected by it. Lord, give us grace to hear your word, to understand it and to put it into practice so that we may live lives that truly worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you've just joined us, we've been working our way through John's gospel, John's account of the life of Jesus. The past few weeks, we've been looking at that encounter that Jesus had with the religious leader named Nicodemus. But today, we're actually moving on. In verse 22, Jesus and his disciples move on to the Judean countryside And we read that Jesus is baptizing people. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament that actually says that Jesus baptized people. In chapter 4, John tells us that, in fact, Jesus himself never baptized people, but his disciples did. But either way, it's clear that Jesus was calling people to express their need for forgiveness by being baptized. That's verse 22. In verse 23, we're also told that John and his disciples are baptizing people. In verse 25, we learn that those disciples of John the Baptist get into an argument with another Jew. We're not told who the Jew is. We're not told what the argument was about. We're not told whether John's disciples won the argument or lost. All we are told is that in verse 26, the result of that argument is that John's disciples come to John with a sense of jealousy and alarm and they draw John's attention to the fact that they are losing customers to Jesus. Look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. Now, you'd think the disciples of the man whose sole purpose in life was to prepare the way for Jesus, you would think that they might see that this is actually a good thing. People are going to Jesus, that's exactly what they should be doing. But no, they get jealous. These disciples of John fall into the perennial pitfall of all people in ministry, jealous pride. You see, in their pride, they want to be the ones that people flock to. They want to be in the spotlight. They want people to know their names. It's really common in churches today for pastors and ministers to feel jealousy over the church down the road that's got more young people or the church down the road that has a bigger crowd. I've done it. It's, it's really petty. It's dishonouring to God. It damages our witness. So if you see me doing it, call me out on it. Pray that I won't. But it's not just ministers who feel it. It's so easy. So easy. For any of us to say that we are serving Jesus when in actual fact we are serving ourselves. It's so easy to get up and speak of the greatness of Jesus when the worship that we really crave is not the worship of Jesus but the worship of you. We can do it when we volunteer to serve others. We can do it when we volunteer here in church. You might, you might have signed up to lead the music, John and Nap. No, I'm not pointing. <laughs> you might have signed up to help do something, to teach kids, to lead music, to do whatever. Who are you doing it for? 
Are you doing it so that everyone will tell you what a good job you did? Who is it that you're really serving? Now, obviously, the solution to that is not to serve. The solution is to have right motives in why we serve. John's disciples might be suffering from a case of jealous pride. Their problem certainly doesn't come from their master, though, does it? Because in John's disciples, we see the problem of self-worship. We see the idol of pride. And we see it working out to the point that they can't rejoice over people going to be baptised by Jesus. We see the problem there. But when we look to their master, when we look to John the Baptist and his answer, it's there that we see the solution. There's three parts to the solution that you see on your outline. And the first step to killing self-worship is to get a right perspective of what we have. That's what John says in verse 27. The disciples come to him and say, look, Jesus is getting all the customers. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. John's disciples are all worried that Jesus is taking what they think belongs to them. And John says, it was never yours in the first place. Everything you have, everything you have is a gift from God. Commentators look at verse 27 and they kind of wonder, what is it exactly that John is talking about that we receive from heaven? And I think he's being perfectly clear, everything you have is a gift from heaven. If you're going to overcome self-worship, if you're going to overcome that desire to make yourself the centre of your life, you first need to remember that you don't actually deserve anything. We so need to hear this because we we love listing the things that we deserve, don't we? We think we deserve most of the things that we have and some of the things that we don't have. We we think that we deserve, it is our right to to be healthy, to be happy, to have a good job, to have a house to live in, to be respected. We think we deserve all these things. But here John the Baptist flips that on its head. We don't deserve anything. No one deserves anything. Even the most basic of things. You might say, surely, like human rights. That's something that everyone deserves. John would say, no, there are no such thing as human rights. Only gifts from God. The only reason that you can lay claim to the right to free speech or the right to education or the right to be free from discrimination is because God gave you dignity and value in being created in his image. Everything you have is a gift from above. You don't deserve anything any more than a canvas can say, I deserve to be a Picasso. He's a painter, right? I'm not very good at art. The first step to overcoming sinful self-worship is to remember that everything that you have is a generous gift. The second step to get a right is to get a right perspective of what our role is in life. And if everything that we have comes as a gift from God, it would make perfect sense that 
our life should in some way be directed towards God. That's exactly how John understands his life. Have a look at verse 28. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Do you see how John understands his role in life? First and foremost, above anything else, John is a servant of Jesus. When John went to parties and introduced himself, the first thing he said was not that he was a father or a son or a husband or a Jew or a plumber or someone who likes fishing, whatever it is. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't even lay claim to the fact that he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. No, these things were irrelevant next to the fact that he was a servant of Jesus. To help his friends understand this, John uses the image of a wedding party. Now, Jewish people would have been quite familiar with the metaphor of God being the groom and Israel, his people, being a bride. It's one that comes up again and again in the Old Testament. Here, John sort of takes that and applies it to himself and applies it to Jesus. He says, and the New Testament continues with this, that Jesus is the groom. He is the one who has come to marry his bride. He's come to commit himself in loving, permanent relationship with his people, the church. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride, and John, well... He's just the groom's friend. He's the best man, if you like. He has an important role to play, but next to the groom, he's nothing. This is not his show. He is not the star of the day. Now, if you've ever been a bridesmaid or a groomsman, you will have hopefully understood this fact. The wedding is not about you. Hopefully. I have seen it happen. I'll tell you in a sec. There's a reason that we get all the bridesmaids and all the groomsmen and dress them all the same. They're supposed to blend in. They are not supposed to command attention. They're supposed to focus attention on someone else. That is their whole reason for being there. You're you're in a supporting role when you're a groomsman or a bridesmaid. Your whole purpose is to serve the bride and the groom. Now, I was at my cousin's wedding, uh, I was MC for his wedding, actually, and at that wedding, the best man completely missed this point. Because instead of using the best man's speech to honour the groom, he used it to propose to his girlfriend, which was kind and sweet and, you know, beautiful and all, but he sort of missed the point of the wedding. Anyway, my cousin was okay with it, didn't matter. The role of the best man is not to serve his own interests. It's not to steal the spotlight. It's to serve the groom. It's a role that brings John joy. He considers it an absolute privilege. He says, this joy is mine and it is now complete. It's complete because his heart has found its purpose, its goal, its eternal satisfaction. 
he has heard the voice of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the thing that John understood and the thing that we need to understand is that we were not created to be worshipped. We were not meant to be served. And the more that we try to greedily acquire glory for ourselves and power for ourselves and, and money and recognition for ourselves, the more that we try to do anything in life for ourselves, the more we rob ourselves of the joy that is found in doing everything for Jesus. You see, John knew that joy. He, he considered it pure joy that he could be the groomsman that pointed to the groom. He considered it pure joy that he could serve the one who was greater. He was satisfied playing second fiddle to Jesus. He was willing to lose everything. He was willing to become less so that Jesus might become more. Brothers and sisters, when you've got a right perspective of who you are and what you have, when you understand that you are a creature made by God and for God, a recipient of His grace, one who is entirely dependent on him for absolutely everything that you have, and yet one who is given the great privilege of being his child and serving him. When you get that right perspective, you'll start to be able to let go of your need to be worshipped. It's when those truths become real to you that you can be content being a nobody. But ultimately, we'll never move beyond our cravings for self-worship. We'll never overcome our desire for self-love and the love of others if we only ever look at ourselves. The, the first two steps to overcoming self-worship is to, to look at ourselves, to recognise who we are and what we have. But the thing that will enable us to think less of ourselves is to stand in awestruck wonder at the one who is truly worthy of worship. And it's for this reason that in verse 31, John, the author of the gospel, he chimes in to lift our gaze to have a right perspective of who Jesus is. And he tells us in verse 31 that Jesus is the one who is above all, the one who is supremely worthy of glory and honour and power. He tells us in verse 34 that he is the one who reveals God to us in truth. He gives us the answers to our most bursting, burning questions. He shows us who God is. He shows us God's plans for this world. He shows us how we fit into those plans. That's remarkable. In verse 34, he again shows us that Jesus is the one that has the Holy Spirit without limit. He is fully God and fully man. In verse 35, we see that Jesus is the one that the Father supremely loves and the one to whom all authority has been given. In verse 36, we see that Jesus is the one who comes to offer you life, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. You're going to walk out those doors this morning into a world that is convinced that life 
is about you doing you. That life is about you finding meaning and purpose within. That life is about you finding joy and fulfillment and hope in the things that make you happy. You're walking out into a world where self-worship is the norm. And the messages that you hear from advertising, the people you follow on social media, the financial planner that's helping you get set up for retirement, all of them are going to tell you that life is about you and what matters to you. And they'll try to convince you that the purest joy in life is to serve yourself. They are the messages that we will hear. They are the messages, that's the air we breathe. It's, it's so ingrained in our society. And friends, if you listen to them, if you listen to them, not only will you never be happy because you'll be constantly plagued by feelings of fear and doubt and anger and disappointment, but more than that, You'll cut yourself off from the most joyous life imaginable. Because the reality is that you were not made to worship you. You were not made to love yourself. You were made to worship someone infinitely more interesting, infinitely more captivating, infinitely more satisfying, and infinitely more glorious. You were made by him. Everything you have is a precious gift from God. You were made for him. You've been given the privilege of serving him now and forever. You were made to worship the one who came and gave himself so that you may have life. Friends, you were made to worship Jesus. So why don't we pray and ask that God would actually help us do that. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so prone to loving ourselves, to serving ourselves, to even finding meaning and joy and hope in life within ourselves. Lord, show us how brutally captivating that is. Show us how that leads only to death. Show us that Within ourselves, we do not have the resources. We do not have uh, enough in us to actually satisfy. Lord, show us afresh each day that we need you. That everything that we have, our very existence, life and breath and everything comes from you. Help us to know that not only do we need you, that we are made for you. That our, our chief end in life is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. Help us to know that and help, help for that to be real in our lives. Help us to know the joy, to experience the joy of serving you wholeheartedly. To the point that we are willing to let go of everything else. That we are willing to become lesser in the eyes of this world. So that you may be glorified. Father, would you do that in us? We can't do it ourselves. Work in us by your spirit. Move us to worship you. 
And we pray it for the glory of our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus. Amen.